to our text today. Lord, thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the baptism, the conversion of Jordan Graham. We thank you that you're a saving God, and we are the fruit of that today. And Lord, we pray now as we continue in our time of worship through the preaching of the word, your spirit would attend to this. We need your spirit to grant us illumination, illumination to our dull eyes. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we may behold your glory in this text. And we ask this for your son's sake. Amen. G.F. Barber in his biography of the Scottish pastor Alexander Wyatt. He was a pastor of the late 19th century, early 20th century. He refers to a letter that Wyatt wrote to his pastor friend James Stewart. He had a huge influence on Alistair Begg, just as a side. And he writes this letter from Grenoble, France, where he is vacationing. And Wyatt was observing the hopeless-looking vines and vineyards in Grenoble, even though Grenoble is known for their beautiful vineyards. He noted the, how dry the ground was and the twisted and the knotted roots and the fact that no tree, plant, or bush in the land looked more unpromising than the vines and the vineyards. In fact, the vineyards are at present, he says, the picture of death. While other trees like the plum and the apple and the cherry tree are, to use his words, blooming beautifully. And yet with all that said, White asserts, be sure that in spite of all appearances at present, the land will in a few months be covered with grapes. Isn't that hopeful? In spite of all present appearances, the land will in a, just a short time be a very fruitful land. And that's what we could say, I think, about David's initial ascension to the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Second uh, Samuel 2 brings us to the day that we have been longing for since 1 Samuel chapter 16 when Samuel goes to David in some very dark days in Israel's history and he anoints David as king. And yet as we'll see, the, the initial expression of David's kingdom is far from the exalted expectations that we would have for Israel's king. But in spite of all appearances, Israel's land will be just in a few short years filled with God's glory through the reign, the dominion of his king David. Indeed, up to this point, the present appearances are, to use Alexander White's words, a picture of death. Saul has died, their king. Israel at this point is under the thumb of the Philistines. In fact, the Philistines have, have captured much of the land that Joshua had, had captured for the people of God. Samuel is dead, their great prophet. And Samuel's anointing of David, 
some 13 years earlier is a, is a distant memory. In fact, the one that was anointed, David, has been living in the land of Israel's arch enemies, the Philistines. But in spite of present appearances, God is no less sovereign. God is no less in control. And now when the fullness of time has come, God has sent forth, you could say, his son, David, to his throne. God's kingdom is about to be expressed through his chosen king for the first time since the Garden of Eden and the first king, Adam. And that brings us here to the first section of this passage, 1 to 4, the inaugurating of the kingdom by the enthroning of the king. Notice we in verse 1. After this, that is the lament of David as he lamented the loss of Saul and, and, and the loss of Jonathan after their death at the hands of the Philistines. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, Hebron. Since the disaster at Ziglag, David had strengthened himself in the Lord. And now he's back to himself. When David had preached propaganda to his soul, as we saw that, how did he respond? He acted in, in fear and in panic and despair and self-reliance. When we are having that, those kind of negative emotions, that's always the evidence that you're not trusting in the Lord. All right? But now he's walking again by faith in the promises. What are the promises? That he will be king, that God's purposes will pre prevail in this kingdom. And we see him now worshiping and waiting before the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 50. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promises give me life. Isn't that a hopeful verse? This is my comfort in my affliction. We will be afflicted in this world. We're, it's, a, it's a groaning world, Paul says. Your promises give me life. They revitalize me. They renew me. And now Saul's death has removed the human roadblock that has kept David from being king, the fulfillment of God's promises. But even then, David takes nothing for granted. He brings everything to the Lord. It says that he inquired of the Lord. And notice this language, shall I go up into the cities of Judah? Uh, that word, that phrase, go up, is repeated five times in the first three verses. Symbolically, the land of Israel was the highest place on earth because it was seen symbolically as the nearest to heaven. And so moving from exile into the land is a going up. So you're in exile, you're outside the land, and you come into the land. It's an aliyah. That's, that's the word that is even used today. Is, uh, Jews from all over the world 
leave their vocations and their countries, and they go to Israel and make the Aliyah. They, they're going up. And that's what you see here. And I think this Aliyah, biblically speaking, typifies the greater Aliyah, where the greater Messiah will ascend to the throne. He will be exalted through his obedience. Philippians chapter 2. Well, here David answers, or the Lord answers David, and he tells him to go to Hebron. Now, this is not just some arbitrary city. Hebron was the city of Abraham. It's where Abraham had settled. He had built a, an altar there. You see that in Genesis 13 and 14. And it was, the where, it was where the Lord appeared to Abraham through those three men and told him that in a year, your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah would end up dying at Hebron. They would bury her just outside the city. In fact, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Rebekah, and Leah would all be buried in Hebron. And what's also interesting here is that Hebron, remember, God had promised Abraham the land. Now, Paul will later say, Romans 4.13, it's the world that God promises Abraham. But God had promised Abraham the land, and this was the only portion of the land that Abraham ever possessed. And so this is a very important city. In other words, Hebron is where Israel's life in the land began. And David going to Hebron links David to Abraham. That's a very important point as we, as we connect the dots in our Bible. All right? It's one grand, beautiful meta-narrative, meta-story. And so, in linking David's story to Abraham's, he's linking the promises made to Abraham to David. So this is wetting our appetite that what God is going to do in and through David has massive, massive implications. It's connecting the promises to Abraham to David. And one of those central promises is that through the seed, the offspring of Abraham will come the blessing to the nations. Salvation. Now, Genesis 11, there was a curse on the nations. And now the blessing through the seed of Abraham will reverse the curse that's on the nations. And so David is coming to Hebron. This is not arbitrary. Now, notice in verse 2. So David went up there in his... Two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Now, if it rubs you wrong, when we read of his two wives, I think that's the point. You are to read between the lines. You're to read this polygamy through the lens of Genesis 2.24, where God established what marriage is to be between a man and a woman, and God does not change his mind. So this is kind of a wink, wink. When the ultimate Messiah, the greater king comes, he will not be a polygamist. He will be married to one bride. He will be an unadulterated bridegroom. 
In fact, David, we're going to see in chapter 3, he's going to take on more wives. And though the Bible, the text here doesn't explicitly critique the polygamy, we're reading between the lines as we see the chaos that breaks out in David's life and reign because, in large part, his polygamy. Notice in verse 3, David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king. King over the house of Judah. And so for the first time, this is such an important section in your Bible. If you want to know how the dots connect, this is one of those sections you have to have marked up. For the first time, really, since Genesis 2, before the fall, we see God's kingdom being expressed through his chosen king. From Genesis 1, we, we recognize that God's purpose is to establish a kingdom on earth expressed through his imago Dei, his image bearers, which is kingly language. God is going to express his kingdom through human kings, vice regents. And here for the first time since the fall, we see God's plan unfolding in an explicit way. Remarkably, it's only over one tribe. In other words, this is a small beginning, but it's the kingdom of God. Don't lose sight of that. This is the only true kingdom in spite of present appearances. This kingdom, Jesus would later say, is like a mustard seed. And when that seed is planted, it's the smallest of all seeds. And yet when it grows and it matures, it becomes larger than all the garden plants. This is the kingdom of God. And yet, let's not forget the situation. The kingdom of God is erupting, but it is a horrific situation in which it's erupting in. Israel has just been defeated by the Philistines, and now many of their, you could say much of their land, is being occupied by Philistines. And though it's going to become clear that the Philistines haven't gone away, the fact is, we won't read about them again until chapter 5, verse 17, after David becomes king of all 12 tribes. Though it's clear that the Philistines have not gone away, for the writer, whatever the Philistines were clearly doing at this moment was not relevant. What was relevant what mattered in the scheme of things is that God's king is on his throne. And that is so important for us today. Because we, we look in our culture and it appears we're losing the culture wars. I hate that as bad as anyone in this room. But what really matters, as it appears that we're losing the culture wars, is that they cannot dethrone our king. And we need to rest in that when we see our culture going haywire. 
in spite of present appearances, our God sits enthroned in his king. And as the new king over Judah, someone informs him. This is interesting. It's the first act as the king. Someone informs him about the mercy the people of Jabesh-Gilead had shown to Saul. And that brings us to the second part of this passage, extending the kingdom by mediating blessing. Notice with me in the second part of verse 4. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Now, what's important here is to remember what had happened. Saul had delivered Jabesh-Gilead some 40 years earlier, right? From Nahash the Ammonite. Nahash means serpent. So he had delivered them from the serpent. Forty years later, they're still devoted to this king because he had delivered them. When a king delivers you, you never get over it. And so after Saul died and his body was stolen by the Philistines and taken into their land and nailed up to a wall in their pagan temple, the people of Jabesh-Gilead made the trek, all-night trek, into the land, would have been very, very um, dangerous to be in the land of the Philistines. They went into the temple and they took Saul's corpse and they stole it from the Philistines and they took it back into their land of Jabesh-Gilead. And they had shown mercy and taken care and honored the corpse of Saul. Now David hears word about that. And David, knowing that they can't uh, live merely on the fumes of memory, here's what he's going to do. He's going to call them to benefit from submitting to his kingdom. All right, notice with me in verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord... Because you showed this hesed, loyalty, to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Do you get this? David seeks to woo them to his kingdom. He's wooing these enemies, they're loyal to Saul. He knows that as God's king, this is so important, guys. This is, this is important today. As God's king, it is for their good that, he, that they receive the blessing that he has for them. It is for their good. But only in submission to his rule. You don't come into a kingdom on your terms. You come on the king's terms. It reminds me of Jesus' gentle bid in Matthew 11. When he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. Isn't that what the heart longs for? Rest. In a restless world, rest. Of course, we know that what that yoke means. He says, take my yoke upon you. You know what that means? Complete submission. You don't come to Jesus on your terms. He's the king. You come to Jesus on his terms. That means there's no area of your life that you sequester from him. Your mind, your affections, your will, the way you spend your time, your resources, your talents, they're all submitted to the king. But notice, when you do so, you will find rest for your souls. Jesus attracts us, not by warning us, but by his goodness, by his benevolence, because he's a good king. And David here prays blessing and steadfast love and faithfulness over these people of Jabesh Gilead. Of course, the blessing, the supreme blessing, is God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, that word steadfast love is a very important term in the Old Testament. It's, we would spell it in English, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. And it's hard to define in English terms, but we could say that it's God's utter commitment to his covenantal promises to his people. He is committed to your good. He's committed to your shalom, human flourishing, eternal well-being. That's his hesed. And the, fest, the, the word faithfulness here is the word, we would, we would uh, spell that in English, E-M-U-T, emmet. So hesed and emmet, his steadfast love and his faithfulness. His faithfulness is his commitment to ensure that he carries out his commitment, his covenantal commitments. If we get that, man, if we get that, we won't be anxious, we won't be fearful, we won't be discouraged, we won't despair, we won't be jealous, we won't covet, we won't be discontented, we'll be grateful. Just as Jimmy Webb told me yesterday, Jimmy Sr., said, how are you doing? He said, I can't believe how, God, how good God is to me. He treats me like royalty. Isn't that beautiful? That's what this means. When we become children of God, we become children of the king, and he is committed to treat us like royalty. In fact, these two terms are often linked, steadfast love and faithfulness. In fact, when Moses says, show me your way, show me your glory, God responds by preaching a sermon about his attributes. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why you see those two terms often together. And David, as the new king, seems to be the mediator for those blessings. At this point in time in redemption history. And that's supported by the last line here. Notice in verse 6. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. He appears here to be a promising that he was the one through whom the Lord would bless the people of Jabesh Gilead. This is God's king, newly enthroned 
inviting them to accept his goodness, which he identified with God's goodness. Isn't that beautiful? That's preparing us for something even greater. Now, in light of this promise, notice in verse 7. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now, strength and valiance is needed in a broken world. But when God tells us to be strong and to be valiant, he's saying, naturally speaking, you have a reason to be fearful. But you have to assess things not through the lens of the culture and the world. You have to assess things through the lens of the exalted and enthroned king. And, and so strength and valiance here was needed because Saul, their king, is now dead. And not only that, the ones behind his death now occupied their territory. 1 Samuel 31, verse 7. But David could call for strength and valiance. Now, sometimes when someone tells you that, don't be fearful. It sounds like a cliche, doesn't it? When you have every reason, naturally speaking, to be fearful, someone who's not in your shoes tells you not to be fearful, you want to punch them in the nose. But David could rightly call them to be strong and steadfast and courageous and valiant based on the promises. The promises of God, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his blessing, because the king has ascended to the throne. That's reality in spite of present appearances. And doesn't that sound familiar? It does sound familiar. God's blessing is offered to his enemies. And that's who we are apart from Christ. Romans 5. God's blessing is promised to his enemies through the king. Because the one who once held their loyalty is defeated. And because there's a greater king who sits enthroned. That's the gospel. Now, we're not told how Jabez Gilead responded to David. Maybe it's left unsaid because it's an open-ended offer to everyone who hears this promise. But what we are told is that there was even now a counter-movement. As David is enthroned, there's a counter-movement going on, one that did not want David to be king. Shouldn't surprise us. That brings us to the last part of this passage, opposing the kingdom by antichrist defiance. Look with me in verse 8. But Abner, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maenaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel, except Judah. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old. 
and it began to rain. Now this but Abner, this drives home that Abner's action is presented here as a clear response to David's enthronement. This is an antichrist response. The spirit of antichrist is alive and well and has always been so. Anti-Messiah. Now, not to be confusing here, but we'll see this at the end of this passage. Ishbosheth only reigned two years, and those two years correspond to David's last two years in Hebron. And so, this is really flash-forwarding five years or so. In fact, we don't know anything about David's first five years in his reign in Hebron except his promise of blessing to the people of Jabesh-Gilead. So this is a flash-forwarding. So where David's enthronement was a response to Saul's death, Abner enthroning Ishbosheth, which was the son of Saul, who was the son of Saul, is a response to David's growing influence as king. When the, when the Christ is growing in influence over a people, there will be spiritual warfare. You can rest assured of that. Ephesians chapter 6. Paul ends that great treatise directed to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ who is to walk worthy of the calling. And he says, when you walk worthy of the calling, rest assured, there will be spiritual warfare. So the text concern is in the last two years. All right? The last two years of David's reign, which in Hebron, over one tribe, Judah, because that corresponds to the two years of Ishbosheth's reign. And the reason the writer's concerned here is because in these last two years, there are two claims being made on the allegiance of the people of God. Ironically, you see where Ishbosheth is enthroned, Mayanam. Ironically, Mayanam means two camps. Isn't that interesting? Two camps. Many scholars believe this is where the real division begins to take place between Judah and the rest of the tribes that will ultimately end in 931 BC, where the two kingdoms, or the, the one kingdom becomes divided because of the sins of Solomon and his son Rehoboam. But for now, this reminds us, Abner's action here reminds us that division only happens among a people when there's more than one king ruling. If everybody has the same king ruling, there will be disagreements. There will always be disagreements. We all have different opinions. But there can only be division when you have more than one king ruling. If everybody is under, even functionally speaking, the rule of one king, disagreements, yes, but not division. And that's why it's so horrifying to see Churches split. That is just the case in point that there were more than two kings ruling in that church. 
And here we see division because there are two kings. If everyone had the same king under the same terms, yes, there would be disagreements, but there would be unity. But Adner's move here isn't just a political disagreement. Abner knew, keep this in mind, Abner knew that the promise of the kingdom had been given to David. He was very aware of that, that God, through the prophet Samuel, had promised David this kingdom. And so the fact that Abner would not submit to David reflects also an opposition to the Lord as well. And Abner has a lot of colleagues. Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2, verses 2 and 3, and it hasn't gone away. Indeed, in Jesus' day, what did they say of Jesus? We, Luke 19, 14, we do not want this man to reign over us. Notice in verse 10. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. Now he's going to be murdered in a short time. Okay? That's why his reign was cut short. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. In the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So it appears that Ishbosheth reigned those last two years of David's reign in Hebron. Now, his name, Ishbosheth, it's given in 1 Chronicles 8.33 as Eshbal, which scholars tell us is his original name. Eshbal. That's his real name. Eshbal likely means the fire of Baal or Baal. Dr. Mulder pronounces it Baal. Everybody else pronounces it Baal. When I'm around him, it's Baal. But Baal was a Canaanite god, as we know. So the fact that he would have been named Eshbal tells you something about Saul. They'd name his son the fire of Baal. All right? They got a king like the nations because that's what they asked for. So names containing Baal sometimes had Baal replaced with the word Bosheth, which means Shame. So this is likely a nickname. The man of shame. The man of shame. And in this case, the man of shame was Abner's puppet. And he reigned two years, which correspond to David's last two years at Hebron. Let's close this out. And for those two years... Ishbosheth's reign to the naked eye would have been more impressive than David's. After all, he rules over all of Israel. 
11 tribes. And David reigns over one tribe. That's 8%. 8% of the tribes. But we must not let the less than impressive appearances blind us to the real presence of the kingdom of God. And this should encourage us. This should encourage virtually most local churches in church history. Most of Jesus' disciples, followers, pastors, and ministers, and people soon learn that their ministry, their particular ministry, feels a bit like the Hebron stage of David's ministry. It's marked by obscurity, insignificance to the greater culture, and small influence. That's the way our ministries often feel. It's like the Hebron stage, where David is ruling over one tribe of the twelve. And that's fine, as long as we remember that Jesus already does reign. And that what you deem to be insignificant has all the significance in the world to the one who purchased the church. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, he has John write seven letters to seven churches. And most of those churches we wouldn't know anything about except we have Revelation 2 and 3. From the naked eye, by all appearances, they looked obscure. They looked insignificant. And Jesus seven times says, I know. I know about your circumstances. I know about you. So Jesus does reign. But that didn't happen, as we know, without great, great spiritual warfare. Likewise, three murders will happen. All right? Before David becomes king of all 12 tribes. Azahel, chapter 2. Abner, chapter 3. And Ishbosheth, in chapter 4. And yet none of those would have taken place. None of them, if the leaders had only submitted to the true king. Oh, if we could learn that. So much chaos and dysfunction would not happen if we would just submit to the king. If you just bow your knee to him and trust him, that he is the fount of true blessing, true steadfast love, true faithfulness. And these murders were needless. Nor would the people of God been divided had Abner just submitted his preferences and his desire to be a leader and have influence, if he had submitted them to the true king. Because of Abner's rebellion, David did not receive the welcome that he perhaps even deserved as God's anointed king. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But, 
In spite of Abner, David became king as part of God's unfolding purpose for the world. You cannot thwart God's purposes, no matter who gets elected. And his purpose is this, to bring all things in submission to the lordship of the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. All things placed underneath his feet. God, Paul says, the mystery revealed to Paul is is that he is summing up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. And David and his kingdom foretaste the kingdom that God is going to finally establish, the kingdom that Jesus preached, the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated by his crucifixion, taking God's judgment in our place so that he can make us fit to enter that kingdom. Without atonement, there's no people in the kingdom. We have to be atoned for, but we can enter that kingdom. And so on the cross, he made us fit to enter that kingdom. And he inaugurated the kingdom by his resurrection from the grave. And one day, he's going to finally establish and consummate that kingdom. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 24. When he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power. All the stuff we get so nervous and uptight about in our culture, one day it's going to be brought underneath the feet of this king. And now we live between the times, between the time of his inauguration and the final establishment of his kingdom. And it should not discourage us if all we see is a mustard seed expression of that kingdom. How many people live on earth now? Seven billion? We only baptized one today. That's the kingdom of God coming to bear. So why should we not be discouraged? Because we have it from a reliable source that Hebron will become a great mountain and fill the earth. Daniel 2, verse 35. And the king reigns now. Not in Hebron. He reigns in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And this king's word, even to his would-be enemies, is a promise of blessing. If we would only submit to him and receive it by repentance and faith in him. Repentance of our sins, where you say, okay... I am messed up. I've made a mess of my lives. I am broken. I am sinful to the core, but I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to lay it down right here, turning away from it. That's repentance. And yet at the same time, even as we do that, many of you have already committed to this king. When you were regenerated and converted to Christ in repentance and faith, you committed to this king. But we know that there are countless functional Abners every day, functional Ishbosheths that vie for our allegiance, don't we? That's why a Christian can find themselves committing heinous sin, though that does not reflect who they are as people of the kingdom. 
There are countless Abners, countless Ishbosheths. But Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. And so the question we have to ask each day, will we follow the true king like Judah? Or will we be drawn to another king? A king replacement. An Ishbosheth. A king of shame. How foolish. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the kingdom is coming because it's already come. In part, it's been inaugurated. That's why we're here. That's the only way to make sense of my conversion. It's the only way to make sense of anyone's conversion in this room. Is that the king reigns. And he reigns by his spirit. Thank you. And I thank you for this local church, which is an assembly signaling that the king reigns, that he sits enthroned. But Lord, we, we aren't just recipients of the kingdom, we're agents. And so Lord, even as this gospel takes root in our hearts, and where we behold and believe this king for all that he promises, I pray that it would provoke us to be agents of the kingdom to take the good news of the kingdom to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods, to the places where we, we recreate, indeed, to our own homes, and offer the promises of the kingdom, your blessing, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, your rest in the face of your son, Jesus Christ, only if they would come on his terms. We pray for that. And Lord, I pray if there's any here today that's never trusted in Jesus, never entered that kingdom, I pray today would be the day they would bow the knee to Jesus. We ask this for his sake. Amen.